Good morning. So uh, this morning and uh, Lord willing next week, we're going to be finishing a couple things up. So we're going to be finishing First uh, Timothy and uh, mysteriously, I did not update the uh, slide. Um, what I do uh, is I copy the slide from the last lesson, paste it forward, and update the title and the verse. So I did not update the verse on this one, but it's uh, verses 11 through 21 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So we're going to be finishing 1 Timothy, um, and then next year, Lord willing, every once in a while, I'm uh, going to be teaching through Titus next, and then after that, go back to 2 Timothy, um, just in teaching through these epistles. The reason why I'm doing this is uh, what we've noticed as we've gone through these uh, sections of 1 Timothy is that Timothy is explicitly told to give the instructions here to the church. We're going to see that in verse 17. Uh, If you look forward to that, it says, instruct those who are rich. So the letter has kind of been woven throughout with instructions like that, that this is not just a letter for Timothy to understand how to do his own personal work as an evangelist, but what kind of applications should he be urging his, uh, his brethren to be making and how should he be relating to the brethren? And we've talked about how uh, the, the theme of 1 Timothy, uh, I think, can be summarized as growing as God's household. In chapter 3, uh, Paul had mentioned that the reason he's writing these things is that so, so that one can understand how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth, right? So Paul is not just commending this to Timothy, but obviously as we have this in our Bibles, this was to be read not just with Timothy personally, but shared among churches. So that even if a church did not have a man working among them as an evangelist, they would still be able to make the applications and apply the focus that Paul was also urging Timothy to make. So the way that I've titled this section of 1 Timothy is Taking Hold of Eternal Life. That comes from verse 12, where he tells Timothy to take hold of eternal life. I think everything can really be brought into that theme, and we'll see that as we go through this. I'm going to start reading uh, verses um, 11 through 16, and we'll get into our first point of the lesson from there. But verses 11 through 16 of 1 Timothy 6, we're just going to work through this uh, section to the end of the book. It says, But flee from these things, you man of God, And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in in, in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The first point is we need to be pursuing the condition of glory. The way that we take hold of eternal life is not just some ambiguous theoretical thing, but there are ways where we can tangibly pursuing eternal life, and that's by pursuing a condition of glory. Uh, The first principle I want to bring up is noticing the necessary force in the way that Paul exhorts Timothy. Um, The illustration I'm about to use is not like a perfect parallel to the way that Paul is exhorting Timothy, but when I was in college, um, I would be in classes sometimes where what the professor would do 
to engage everybody, he would kind of indiscriminately call on people and ask like hard questions that demanded preparation in order to answer them. And he would just indiscriminately, you know, call on people. Usually what I would do is when the professor would begin to do that, I would do the thing where I stopped making eye contact with them and kind of like try to sink back in my chair a little bit to make it like, you know, almost like strategize. I don't want them to call on me, right? Because I, I, I inherently understood that the professor indiscriminately calling on everybody was trying to emphasize the need for preparation, right? That what we were studying was serious and it was important to understand that seriousness and to apply the principles of study that are coherent with the degree of seriousness involved in that expectation. So Paul with Timothy, right? This obviously is, these are all instructions given to Timothy personally. There's ways that I obviously as an evangelist have to apply these things and take these things serious in a special way. But I think even with that, maturity, maturity in our faith demands growing in how we take ownership and responsibility for the condition of our faith. That really Timothy was just expected to be mature in his faith and to lead by example. And Timothy's example in how serious he would take God's instructions personally would not only help him to humble himself and approach God with humility, but to understand the importance of his work, not just in generically teaching things to an audience, but by personally engaging people, because the applications God is seeking to make are not just things to be spoken of in a context like this, but they are things that need to be personally exhorted in our relationships with each other as well. Um, on, my, on my notes, what I have here is a couple of things under this first principle. One, this would open Timothy's perspective to his own weaknesses. I don't think Timothy was going to read this and think like, got it. You know, look at verse 13. This is one of the most serious charges in all of scripture. How frightening do you think that potentially would be for Timothy to hear this? Back in chapter 5, verse 21, there's another charge where he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Do you think it would impact Timothy's interactions with brethren and the way he would do his work if he really took that seriously? Right? Do you think it would change not just how he approached God, but how it would change his teaching about the instructions God had entrusted to him to give to the brethren, right? Because that ultimately is the nature of the charge, is this is too important for you to relax your hands and be, um, to not be focused. In 2 Timothy, he would talk about how the hardworking farmer is the first to receive the share of the crops. Uh, a soldier, a good soldier, does not entangle himself in the everyday affairs of, his, of the life, of this life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier and no runner can win the race unless he competes according to the rules. And those little parable-like things in 2 Timothy are just trying to reignite Timothy's focus on the seriousness of the mission. Second thing there is, I've heard from an older, older evangelist, something that has really stayed with me and impacted me. Um, this isn't something he said to me personally, it's just something I've heard him say to others. Um, he mentioned that the, the work of an evangelist so much of it is striving to personally grow as much as possible. And then from that growth, sharing it with the brethren and teaching. Go back to chapter 4. I want to show you where uh, Paul actually encourages that to Timothy himself. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things and notice this. For as you do this, 
you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, right? So, so much of my work as an evangelist, taking these things personally, is to apply those principles first and foremost to myself because ultimately God's mission is individually calling us to take ownership and responsibility for the condition of our faith. Um, Second principle that I think is important to see in verse 11. He just got done talking about the love of money and greed, and it's interesting that Paul wasn't allowing Timothy to just think about this as, as this applied to others. Think about the kind of person Timothy was. He had spent years traveling with Paul, suffering with Paul, teaching with Paul. Timothy had gone everywhere with Paul for years. So you'd think if there was anybody who really didn't need to be exhorted to flee from the love of money, Timothy's probably the one who doesn't need it. Like you imagine there's, there's really no room, I would think, for any habits to have ever really formed in greed. So the, the principle, I think, here is the warning against the love of money is actually always good and it's always necessary. That we always need to understand that greed is always an ever-present danger. And we looked at in the last lesson in 1 Timothy, and I'll put up a slide a little bit later of some of those points to review. But one of the most common warnings in the New Testament, if not the most common warning, is a warning against the love of money and the urging of generosity. And again, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, later in the lesson. But it's not enough to be aware of and on guard against the love of money, right? So like I might kind of in my mind be aware that I get it. You know, the love of money is a bad thing. I need to avoid the love of money. And there's kind of like this, again, this theoretical understanding of that. But that's really not enough. Um, It's not enough to just be aware and on guard. We need to be completely free from the love of money and be deliberate in running away from it. Um, A good way to think about this uh, in the second point of this principle on your outline, if we're fleeing something, it's because we fear getting caught and suffering the consequences. There's a friend of mine in Minnesota. He used to live in in Alaska, and I've brought him up a few times in lessons. Um, He just kind of has lived a very interesting life. He was in Alaska at one point with his family and his kids and his mother-in-law, and there's moose in Alaska. And just so you're aware, moose are not actually friendly and cuddly. Like, they're dangerous and terrifying. Like, they're, they're monstrous, they're violent, and if they attack you, the likelihood is they're probably not going to injure you, they're probably going to kill you. So they're, like, walking with this group on some, like, beautiful nature trail, and actually a moose started charging at their whole group, and they were literally running for their lives. And... <laughs> As they were running for their lives, the way he's recounted this and why he's told this story, his mother-in-law was like laughing as they were running because she thought like it was just so interesting that they're running from a moose. And what he said was like she had no idea how much danger they were in. Like she was running with the crowd, so she got like, oh, yeah, we're running from a moose. But she had no idea like they could actually die right now if they get caught, right? So if we're not running from the love of money, it actually shows we don't understand the danger. It shows we're disconcerned about getting caught And it may be that we've already actually been caught. So an evidence of an awareness of the danger is that we are clearly and deliberately fleeing from it because of fear of getting caught and suffering the consequences. The idea is a moose, in that context of that illustration, it's too large and it's too strong, it's too fast. If it gets too close, like, you're not going to win. Like, you're going to die, you're going to lose, right? So the idea that Paul is exhorting Timothy is even Timothy needs to understand he does not have the power to win this battle. If the love of money catches him, he's going to lose that battle. 
and he will suffer the consequences for failing to flee away from it. So the other thing is we've got to flee to safety. And the thing is all of the instructions in this context actually relate to guarding against the love of money and fleeing away from it. That basically encompasses the rest of the chapter. So it's not enough that we're just running away. We have to understand how do we actually flee for refuge into safety. And that gives us a, a bridge to move into the last principle that I want to touch on. So especially with the the latter section of this, so verses uh, 14 through 16, last principle I'm going to bring up here is a primary, if not the primary work of faith is connecting everything we do, everything we think, all of our motives, all of our ambitions to Jesus' nature, glory, and his appearing. And the idea is the more we are filled internally with an awe of God, The more we are filled by his grace, the more reverence we have, the more fear we have, the more gratitude we have for his grace, the more that what is poured out of us will reflect the depth of that awe, the depth of that gratitude, the depth of that fear, right? So the key thing is not just Paul telling Timothy, do these things, but let these things drive your understanding of God so much further. Um... I think an easy way to just make an application of that initially here before we move on to anything else within this principle is one of the simple ways we can do that, I think even just as Paul expresses his awe here and really bookends the whole letter with this expression of awe, is really trying to bring everything that we are, everything that we're involved in, gratefully to God in prayer. That if it's your work, if it's your family, if it's your struggles, it's somebody who's giving you problems, some way that you're suffering, Literally everything that you're involved in when you wake up, when you go to sleep, everywhere you go, striving to bring everything to God with gratitude, right? Gratitude inherently of its own nature fills us with a greater sense of awe of God's majesty as we recognize who it is, who we're thanking, and why. So the other thing about this is the uniqueness and how exclusive the glory is that's being assigned to God. So notice verse 15 and 16. So he mentions that God is the blessed. So like there's nobody blessed ultimately who except the Lord. And I guess specifically in this context as he speaks, it's, it's of Jesus explicitly here. Do you remember the last lesson on grace and truth being embodied in Jesus? The, the last major question I asked is, do you love Jesus? And just trying to think about, is that even like a hard question? Like would that make you uncomfortable that to think like, well, I know I, I believe in Jesus, I serve Jesus, I obey Jesus, and maybe it makes me a little uncomfortable to actually say I love him though, right? But I mean, that's what we see here is, is Paul is utterly infatuated with Jesus because everything that makes life blessed, everything that has the capacity to make life blessed, ultimately comes from one source. So exclusively, there is one who is blessed, there is one who is sovereign, There's one who is king. There's one who is Lord. There is one who has immortality. There is one who dwells in light. There is one whom no man can see or has seen. And there is one to whom belongs honor and eternal dominion. And notice the underlying point there under the principle. Assigning glory apart from God damages my relationship with him and with his people. The reason I I bring that up, I think it's easy to become infatuated with teachers or people who have zeal for the Lord and almost like feel satisfied in having that respect for teachers rather than applying what's being taught, right? Um, 
A popular saying in like Birmingham was, for instance, like preacher worship. You know, or you hear a lesson, and I'm not judging anyone who says this, right? So I just want to put that out there. But when a lesson is over and you think to yourself, good lesson, right? Well, what makes a lesson good ultimately, right? There was a woman who at one point misassigned glory even to Jesus. She said, blessed are the knees that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. And what Jesus was doing is putting glory in its proper position. Jesus was living just as a tool to equip people to see the glory of God and to apply what would connect them to that glory. So ultimately, it's, it's fine if you say good lesson. That's, like, that's not, not a bad thing. But what's not fine is when what you've done with God's word stops there, right? Coming to an assembly is not like watching a football game or going to a sporting event where you're thrilled by watching the success of others. It's I'm being equipped for the work of ministry, right? Last point in this is an application. So verse 11, I think, can seem overwhelming. You know, you've got all these different qualities like Faith, love, perseverance, godliness, righteousness. It's like, wow, first of all, what's the difference between these things? And then, like, how do I even begin to, like, separate these things and apply them? It can seem very overwhelming. So I think, like, the key thing is just find one command, and it doesn't even have to be one of the things here, but even one command, if you let that serve as the anthem of your life, and what I mean is you're constantly holding some command God has given high. That it's, it's, it's like this is what you want to be known for. This is what you're focusing on. This is what you're, you're trying to talk about and center your conversation on. The idea is that which is of the Spirit of God will inherently produce things of the Spirit. So if one command of God is settled in your heart and kept and thought about and you strive to pray about it and, and thrive in it, that one seed will inherently produce the fruit of the Spirit. And I think so many of the things here are simply fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of making applications like that. And your circumstances aren't hindering you from that. They're actually equipping you for it. So I think a misunderstanding is like the preacher has the most opportunity to apply God's Word and grow. And if I don't have like so much time in Bible study or so much time in prayer, I'm really crippled in my capacity to grow. And, and that's actually wrong. Think about Jesus' ministry. We need to be infatuated with God's word. We need to be soaking our minds and our hearts with God's word. But how much of Jesus' ministry do you see was like reading the law? And I'm not saying that undermines the law. What I'm saying is there was a time where things needed to be applied, and that was his ministry, right? And Jesus was busy. And how busy he was was not hindering his applications. It was the application of everything that he had been reading and meditating upon before that, right? So no matter how busy you are, no matter how much stuff you have going on, no matter how many things you feel like are stopping you or crippling you from having the ideal form of service that you desire, your circumstances are actually what's equipping you to be obedient to God, right? So the last thing I will recommend is choosing a command that you see is relevant and fortifies a weakness of yours. So if, if you're struggling with anger, God commands us to put away all anger and to, and to replace that with kindness, mercy, and gentleness. If you're struggling with your language, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about letting no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only that which is good for edification and the need of the moment so that it can give grace to those who hear, right? Fathers, raise up your children the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Wives, love your husbands and submit to them as Christ or as the church submits to Christ and follows him. See, there's so many commands that don't require us to be removed from our circumstances but can be applied within it, right? There's commands that apply to our workplace, how we interact with the world around us, how we respect those who have authority over us. There are so many rich ways that God's will can be applied in any circumstance we find ourselves in. It's just a matter of like this text. What kind of priority am I placing on my need to be closer to God? And do I see the glory of God in a way that by awe and reverence and gratitude draws me nearer? So pursuing generosity, 17 through 19, I'm going to read this this section. Actually, I'm sorry, I had one addition to my notes that I don't want to fly past here. Um, There's a brother in Minnesota who was such a good example to me, and he was somebody where he, I can say without any doubt, was undistracted in his service to God. He had been divorced by his wife. He tried to stop the divorce, but she divorced him anyway. And he just decided to dedicate literally all this time to serving the Lord. And I remember one time I was just with him and we were talking and he just kind of shook his head and he was like, oh, it's not just that there's so much to do, there's so much to become. And I think that's like Paul with Timothy here is this was supposed to keep him from relaxing his hands and, and having an irreverent view of his purpose in his life is look at the glory of, of what there is to become. Look at the glory of, of the importance of just seeing God more clearly, respecting him more fully. There's just, there's so much, there's too much to not take this ownership and responsibility for our faith seriously. So, verse 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So, First thing I want to do is very briefly review with this some things that were in the previous section uh, from the last lesson a, a while ago. Just some points. We looked at how to see the gain of godliness, and we mentioned that physical prosperity, there's a sense where it's inherently dangerous. It doesn't mean it's bad. There are simply dangers we have to recognize. And that godliness calls me to sacrificial living by grace and that it's unavoidable there needs to be a change in what we possess. And so that's really going to be what we're going to be, uh, what we're going to be looking at here with the applications we're going to make. Um, so just some first principles, and I'm going to kind of work through these at, at somewhat of a, a quick pace, just to kind of lay a bit of a foundation for some of the applications that Paul makes here. But with like that review of we need to be ready to change how we use what we have, we need to understand the danger of having a prosperous life physically while recognizing it's not a bad thing, there's simply dangers held within it. One thing is God does not motivate generosity by shaming us for what we have or the abundance of what we have. That's what the world does. And I think it's important we separate how the world motivates generosity from how God does. It's kind of like, have you ever seen those commercials where like, there's somebody who like, has flies flying on them and they're asking you for money, and, and what they're doing is they're trying to motivate your generosity by like, look how impoverished this person is, and then make you feel bad for owning what you have, right? Sometimes somebody will visit another country and evangelize there, and sometimes that country is very impoverished, 
And I think a mistake that gets made sometimes is they will come back and then they'll shame people for having more than what the people had from where they went, right? Look at verse 17. What's a, what's a, what's a reason for why we have what we have? In the text, is it wrong to have and enjoy what we have? It's not. In fact, God has given us what we have so that it can be enjoyed. What we want to avoid is selfish indulgence. What we want to avoid is covetousness. And here's the thing is God motivates generosity, one, by his example and his grace, two, by the freedom that he gives us, and three, by the kind of gratitude that we talked about in the previous point. The more that we understand the example of Jesus, the more that we understand the freedom that God has given us, and the more that we understand the grace extended in a way that makes us grateful, the more motivated we will be by that grace to then imitate his example and be generous with what we have. And there's a grave danger in seeking financial and physical security that can actually be sinful. Remember Luke chapter 12. And the idea is it can seem deceptively wise to constantly be storing up more and more security for the future to the point where in verse 17 it can make us conceited. I think the point is that it can make us feel very self-reliant and pull us from the willingness to take risks in our generosity and suffer losses in a way that can even make us doubt, you know, will I be able to pay my bills next month? Will I have enough food to feed everybody, right? Luke chapter 12, the man in Luke 12, in that exhortation where Jesus was exhorting uh, a man who was telling to beware of greed, somebody was like building up bigger and bigger and bigger barns, and not being generous with what he had. It seems wise from a worldly perspective. I mean, if anything happens, he's got all that security. And then God says, you fool. Who will now own what you possess this very night your soul is required of you, right? The wisdom of the world from God's perspective is foolish. Yes, there's wisdom in storing up. Yes, there's wisdom to make sure that if calamity happens, you know, I've not been foolish about my spending, but... There's just such a danger in that way of thinking, though, to where you can begin to focus on one aspect of what is so easily worldly wisdom that you begin to forsake God's wisdom completely. And I've got on the notes Proverbs 11.25 and Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 2, where in those books of wisdom, the exact generosity that Paul is exhorting here, that exact generosity is spoken about in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. For the same reason that God is pleased with generosity and that we cannot rely on the foundation we set for ourselves in the present. So the idea is we've got to be careful to examine ourselves and ask ourselves honest and hard questions about what we're doing with what we possess. And that's not for other people to judge because obviously our giving and generosity and how we use our resources is something that's to be done quietly and individually, but we've got to be willing to examine ourselves in it. And Christians ought to be the most generous people on the planet. And I don't, I don't think that's an unreasonable generalization to make. And that the generosity of a Christian think, should even get to the point where it's shocking. Now you think about Jesus' example. Think about the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians. That their, their generosity for Paul was even shocking. And I think the final point of that principle is our generosity needs to not be limited to Sunday or a segmented area of my life. The idea is, in our finances, it's not okay. So here's what I give on Sunday morning. That's my section of my finances for God. Everything else is for me, right? The idea is, everything we own belongs to God. 
Everything that we possess can be used for his glory. There's nothing off limits. And I think if we segment things from God and we try to reserve things in some quantifiable way, it really reduces the amount of joy and hope that we can gain by using everything for his glory. So, some applications here. One is I think the, the biggest thing is praying for awareness, for opportunities. That if we really want to be generous, I think what Paul is encouraging here is almost like this desperation to see and find opportunities. Because um, I think there's unwise ways to give. I don't, I don't think the idea is that we're just giving to everyone without any kind of thought or wisdom or any kind of wise reserve for how it's impacting a person or what, what may be the consequences of where we may be giving in certain areas to certain individuals. So there just needs to be a pursuit of a God-oriented awareness and a willingness to seek those opportunities. So praying for those things, for awareness, willingness, and opportunity. But this means that I'm going to have to make new habits. It means that I'm going to have to have a habit of saying no to myself. It means that I may have to simplify my spending where it's possible. In Luke chapter 12, he concludes that parable and exhortation about that rich man who was a fool. And in opposition says, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have stored up for yourselves riches and eternal life. So we have to be willing to suffer personal losses in order to actually be able to have more freedom to give. Um, and that's, again, just simply just trying to think through what are applications we can make if, if we're not able to be generous to try to open our finances up for that. Um, that means is sometimes not always buying uh, the abundance of food that I could buy to overfill me. Sometimes it might mean that there may be days where I might not actually eat food. Sometimes it may mean that there are days where um, I'm buying only what is absolutely minimal just to make sure that I can be generous with others with what I have instead. Um, so the next point is never allow your right hand to know what your left hand is doing. When, when you're suffering losses and when you're making choices where you're doing things that you're not really... You're not living as fully physically as you could. I think you can become a danger like the Pharisees when they fasted and they brought attention to it. Um, the key thing is all things being done in secret. You're, you're not trying to draw attention to it. You're not trying to bring, bring up your generosity in conversations. You're not dwelling on it with yourself. I think one of the most important applications of this is always trying to maintain discreteness and secrecy. Another practical thing is utilizing resources that exist that are easy and practical resources that make it possible to give with wisdom and with deliberateness. Um, one website is GoFundMe. Some of you might know about that website. People set up campaigns for like emergencies or you know, just various different kinds of needs and you can actually read about what people are going through and choose how you want to give or who you want to give to. And the website has careful standards to prevent fraud um, and then there's Sacred Selections. They have a website. It's, it's some brethren who support adoption. Glenn and Antoinette Bates have adopted two children with the financial help of Sacred Selections. And so you can go to those websites and you have easy access to give deliberately, very easily, in ways that before our time frame of technology, it wasn't necessarily that easy to do your research and to be able to do that as discreetly and easily, right? So with that, I'll, I'll tell you what stops me the most. I don't have enough to give oftentimes to where I feel like it's going to do anything. And oftentimes the need on websites like GoFundMe 
and for adoption, it's so huge that like donating some small amount just seems like so in- insignificant. It's like, why bother? <laughs> like it's not, it's not going to do anything. And, and so often in my mind, I've got a minimum amount that's valuable. But here's the thing. Giving within your means is always valuable to God. to some million-dollar need that somebody has on GoFundMe. Don't assume insignificance because of a small small amount. Don't you remember the widow that Jesus brought attention to in the temple? Two pennies. It's like, what are you going to add on to the temple with two pennies? Nobody's going to even eat off of that money, but Jesus said, you know what? She's given actually all that she has, and she's given more than anybody else. So when we're talking about giving, there should be such a diligence in it that we're not allowing ourselves to be outside of God's command at all. That even if giving to like sacred selections on their website, I'm just going to give $2 because that's all I've got. Praise God. God sees and God values the attitude in seeking that out. So, so be practical and don't, don't withhold yourself from giving, even if it seems like your amount is so small that it can't actually accomplish anything. But I think beyond our money, find ways to use every blessing God has given you and I've hard to see, I've underlined you, every blessing you personally have, become creative in how you can use those resources generously for God and for his glory. Having a car to give people rides, having a home to have people over in, having food to share it. There's just so many ways that if, if we're praying for awareness and opportunities, there are so many ways we can be using the unique things that we have, even time, I know that there are brethren here who just, they don't have time. But there are brethren here who have a lot of time. It is so valuable to have a lot of time. There are so many things that you can do if you want to that are not selfish, but by grace you can use it for the service of others. Time can be used as a resource to bring honor to God. And so we can be ultimately generous with everything that we have because everything we have we have to learn to connect it to God's sovereignty, his glory, his image, just as he ended in that past point before saying amen. Right? So all of these things to be deliberately done with purpose. Last point, we need to be pursuing and guarding sound doctrine. Now this is, in the letters written to Timothy and Titus, this is the most common instruction. So let's end with this exhortation. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Before I get into this question, if you are going to tell somebody how to protect sound doctrine and to guard what's been entrusted to them, how would you do that? Like what, what kind of instruction would you give them to convey in a very practical way, how can they guard sound doctrine? The reason I ask that is because verse 20 is not what I would say. I wouldn't say, hey, watch out for the kind of conversations you have, right? Like people are going to talk about certain things and people are going to have like, there's going to be things people talk about and advocate that sound like knowledge, but there are people who invest in those things and go astray from the faith. So first thing, are you guarding God's investment according to its value? Imagine if there was some invaluable, precious heirloom that had been passed down for hundreds of generations. And imagine it's not even in like your possession. Imagine this is in like some museum somewhere. And imagine that there, there are people all over the world that want that possession. 
How do you think that's going to be guarded in that museum where it is, right? Like maybe it'll be like one of those spy movies where there's lasers all around it, guards all around it, cameras all around it. I remember in Minnesota, they had this beautiful museum with wonderful, just incredible paintings, very old paintings. And they would have like things all around the paintings. They would have rules when you walked and they'd have cameras all around them. And then like if you would lean in too far to look at it, a guard would come up to you and like pull you away and like warn you, right? Because the idea is like these things are so precious, we're not even going to let anyone get anywhere near it. They can look at it, but it's got to be from a distance, right? So the idea is if we understand the value of what God has given us, we are going to take great measures to protect it. Sound doctrine is valuable. Understanding how to partake of the Lord's Supper, understanding how we're to worship God congregationally, understanding the roles of men and women, understanding how to pursue God in appropriate faith, understanding baptism being necessary for salvation, these are precious truths that the world wants to undermine and take from us. They're truths that Satan wants to cause us to turn away from. And there are certain things that end up uh, moving us to drift away from these things. So protecting sound doctrine doesn't just happen in public teaching. And it doesn't just happen in personal Bible study. It doesn't just happen in home Bible studies. We need to be weaving the gospel into our conversations. Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter, uh, this is chapter 6, verses 6 through 9 on the notes, not just chapter 6 through 9? God encourages them in the midst of giving them the law. He said, talk about this everywhere. Let it be in your heart. Let it be on your mind. When you rise up, when you go on along the way, talk about it everywhere you go. And what happened to the next generation? They did not know God nor his works which he had done for the nation of Israel. How does that happen? It's people who believed and they were obedient to an extent. But their children knew nothing about God. They weren't weaving the things that God had done in delivering them into their everyday conversation, right? Longevity of faith comes from talking, as simple as it sounds, talking about the gospel in our conversation. It's avoiding irreverent conversation and subjects. And I don't just mean in the world. Basically, at work at UPS when I was there, every conversation was basically completely irreverent. And that was really difficult to understand how to handle, but... Even among brethren sometimes, there are very irreverent things that get talked about or irreverent ways that people are talked about or irreverent ways that God is talked about, ways his name is used. We have to avoid irreverent conversation and subjects. And especially with each other, we need to defend pure conversation. And when we're at work, and I understand it's hard, but at work, we've got to be courageous to defend honorable conversation even among those of the world as well. So how we talk, what we talk about, has a direct impact on our ability to be able to stay safe and guarded. So the idea is if we're not guarding our hearts, if we're not looking at our words and how we're talking, if we're not being critical, not in a self-defeating way, but in trying to be closer to God and his glory, we are open and we're vulnerable to the deceptiveness of various things that can destabilize our faith. So it, the final point, we'll bring the lesson to a close. Ultimately, it matters what we believe, it matters what we teach, and it matters what we practice. Do not just attend with this church when we assemble. Do not just accept the things that are being taught. Don't just go along with the flow. 
Questions need to be asked. Topics need to be studied. There needs to be certainty for sound doctrine. And each of us ultimately is going to give an account to God for how we've handled his word. And we need to be able to be gentle with one another with questions and patient in being willing to study things out and kind with each other in a way that encourages those things, right? And so we have to be cultivating an environment where we take doctrine seriously, but not in a harsh way, in a way that encourages conversation and progressive and ongoing study. Um, The world does not take doctrine seriously. That should be very evident in how chaotic and crazy the religious world is all around us. We've got to be apart from that. We've got to take God's word as seriously as he leads us to. So that'll be the the close of the lesson. If, If you're not a Christian, if you haven't put on Christ in baptism, if you haven't repented of your sins and been moved to repentance, it's because you have not seen the glory of God at all. And I would encourage you, pick up a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read it on your own. See the glory of Jesus. Learn to be filled with an awe of him. Seeing Jesus will move you to repentance. And if you have been moved this morning to respond to the gospel, if there's anything that needs to be brought forward, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.